This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 402, a conversation with Ron Mars. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 402. It's our conversation with Ron Mars episode. I am your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, periodically, we'd like to do uh, conversation pieces or interviews with people. Uh, pros from the industry and today we have ron mars the acclaimed writer of uh, green lantern he was the creator of kyle rayner uh he's also written a long run on silver surfer a long run on witchblade uh he wrote dc versus marvel he wrote the amalgam one shot dr strange fate um he's written a, a lot of stuff from cross gen he did some of my favorite books from that publisher including uh sojourn uh scion uh, so he and the path actually I almost almost forgot that one but it's damn good uh, so he's an, a very good writer and I'm very happy that we had a chance to sit down and uh, interview him for the show although I didn't mention them by name on the podcast I do want to thank James She and Strider Tag uh, users from the Marvel Masterworks forum uh, they submitted some questions and we integrated some of them we didn't get to everything that I believe James She said but uh, some of it, most of it was touched on in some way I think there's maybe only one question I kind of missed um but other than that we had a very fruitful discussion and uh into his process and where he comes from as a writer how he got into comics um kind of an, an interesting story at least i thought he didn't think it was an interesting story because there's not a lot people can learn from it because of uh, the luck and happenstance that uh kind of got him into the industry and the person he knew that really helped him get in but i still think it's a great story so uh, without further ado let's jump right on in actually before we do you can email us at comic shenanigans at gmail.com like us on facebook rate and review us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes you can also listen to us on stitcher now that all the housekeeping is out of the way let's get right into the conversation with ron mars Ron, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you doing this evening? I'm good, Adam. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I'm very excited to have you on the show. You've been a, a, a writer. I've really enjoyed uh, your work for a long time. Um, I have to, at some point in this interview, uh, pester you with some questions about cross-gen work because I absolutely loved your work there. Um, but I'll get there. Sure, no problem. I, uh, you know, it... Uh it didn't last as long as we all wanted it to, but uh, you know, I have some interesting memories, both good and bad, of the whole experience. Okay, well, I definitely want to hear some of those. Um, I'm, I've been switching things up lately. I find that I spend a long time going through someone's career, but I don't always spend as much time on the current stuff. So, what can you tell us about Ominous? Uh, I am the uh, the newly minted editor in chief of Ominous Press, uh, as well as the lead writer and. Uh, the short version is Ominous existed in the 90s during the 90s comic boom and like a lot of other smaller publishers when the bottom dropped out of the business uh, the bottom dropped out of a lot of small publishers so Ominous was around for you know less than two years and then and then disappeared um, but now it's back with uh, Bart Sears as the chief creative officer and is, is the artist and designer on um, on one of the monthly titles and and sort of designed the whole the whole universe. Um, Andy Smith is the art director. He's drawing one of the books, and uh, Tom Ranney is is uh, a buddy of ours and drawing the third book. So it's uh, Bart Sears writing and drawing uh, Giant Killers. Uh, me and Andy Smith on a book called Demigod, and uh, me and Tom Ranney on a book called Prometheus. Um, so we have our we have our uh, premiere issue out, and if you catch us at a convention, you can uh, you can pick that up. 
Uh, we're reprinting some of the older material with new framing sequence uh, material and uh, also available at conventions. Um, and we'll have some announcements about publishing plans uh, in the next month or so, I would think. Let me see, where are we? We're at the end of August. Probably within the next month and a half uh, about where where we're going to publish, how we're going to publish, and the the actual series will start uh, will start shipping uh, next year. Now, where did the original idea to kind of bring back you know this publishing house come from? Was it you or was it Bart or? You know, it, it was really more happenstance than anything. I mean, I've been friends with with Bart and with Andy for twenty years. I mean, I was I was going to do some work for Ominous twenty years ago, and. Um, so you're finally getting around to it. And the bar- I'm sorry. I said you're finally getting around to it. But yeah, it just you know, it was <laughs> it was uh, you know, it was a date that took 20 years to come to fruition. Um, so the, the 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 short version of the story is uh, Bart and Andy and I and another friend of ours named Sean Husvar, who was uh, the publisher at Ominous and was involved with Ominous 20 years ago. We're all at the Baltimore Comic Convention last year, which was the first time that all four of us had been in a room together for about 20 years. I think probably, um, probably since Andy's wedding, uh, and we just, you know, we just got to talking about man, that was a lot of fun. Too bad it didn't work out, and eventually plans sort of germinated for us to well, maybe we should try that again. Uh, so we're we're taking 20 years of experience. With, with you know, publishing successes and publishing failures, uh, you know, we all three, Bart and Andy and I were, were obviously at CrossGen together, so we we had a ringside seat for what what to do and what not to do. Um, so we're gonna we're we're bringing it back and and starting it starting it slowly and and trying to take it bit by bit. Now, how did you decide on the two books that you're writing? Oh, sorry. I was just saying, uh, how did you decide on... So there's three titles. You're writing two of them. How did you kind of make the decision that those were the two you were going to write? Um, it, it was really about... I mean, there, were, there, there are more concepts for more titles, and hopefully we will get to those at some point as well. But it, it, it was really about um, what titles fit the artists best. Um, Demigod is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, we're going to be breaking the fourth wall some it's it's kind of you know what if um, what if Deadpool and Thor got um, and that that really plays to Andy's strengths and the, and the style of his his artwork and then um, we thought we wanted to do Prometheus as the other story and that was um, that was it's kind of a science fiction mashup of maybe the Matrix and and Mad Max to sort of use the, the Hollywood shorthand. Um, it's about characters who are who are gods in a virtual reality who eventually wake up and find out they're monsters in the real world. Uh, and and that's the beginning of the story. That's that's where we kick it off, where these characters figure out that they're um, they're they're not at all what they thought they were. The world is not what they thought it was, and, and how do they deal with that? Um, so we decided that that was going to be the third book, and then, um, you know, we, we looked at a bunch of different artists, and, and Tom Ranney was the one that we kept coming back to. Uh, 
um, because it seems like it's it's kind of perfectly uh, perfectly situated for the sort of techno organic work that that he's so good at, mm-hmm. and uh, and so far the pages that Tom's turning in are just amazing. That's very exciting. And so, and you said the, the publishing plans will be coming out shortly. Yeah, we're going to. Um, we're we're talking to a few different publishers and and kind of getting our ducks in a row. So um, we feel like the you know the one thing you never get back in this business is time. So we don't want to make announcements too early or start releasing books too early um, because then you're always playing catch up with the deadline train. We want to get a bunch of material in the can so that when we do start publishing, we know it's going to come out on a regular basis. So um, we've we've done our premiere issue, which is kind of a teaser. Um, you can get those through the website as well as convention appearances. We'll be at, uh, be at Baltimore Convention on Labor Day weekend. Uh, we should be at the Buffalo Convention in September, and we have some more appearances lined up. Um, and then we're reprinting some of the older ominous material with new framing sequences around them uh, by Tom Randy and myself to give them some context in the current day. Um, so so we're, we're getting some of the material out there, but the real publishing push won't start until next year. Okay. What uh, what has been like? What's the experience like of you know bringing them to conventions? Like, how much fun is that? Um, it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting um, exercise because so many of the people that come up to the booth do remember Ominous. Um, it's you know because I, I had no idea what to really expect from that uh, because it is twenty years ago. But so many people come up and go, oh, man, I had these. I, you know, I looked at this. And, and more than anything, we get people who come up and say that they were regular and voracious readers of Bart's Brutes and Babes tutorials in Wizard Magazine. Mm. Um, in fact, we've had, we've had a number of pros that have come up uh, to say, oh, man, I learned to draw from looking at Bart's stuff in Wizard Magazine. So <laughs> um, y- you never, you know, you never know where where those trails are going to lead. Um, and, uh, you know, we were at, uh, we were at San Diego and I ran into, um, I ran into a, an artist friend of mine named Gustavo Duarte, who's from Brazil. And I had done a, uh, guardians of the galaxy one shot with, and, um, Gustavo, you know, said to me, Hey, what do you, you know, who are you here with? And I said, well, ominous press set up a booth and he goes oh my god you know bart sears i learned to draw from looking at his you know i still have his his wizard magazine things like stashing a book under my bed (laughs) wow that's funny so yeah it's you, you you never realize the you know the the impact that something you did 20 years ago might might have had on somebody Oh, absolutely. Well, speaking of years and years ago, um, let's go way back. And what was it that first brought you into comics as a reader? Um, as a reader, uh, I don't know. It was just there were there was a box of comics in my in my parents' basement uh, that actually belonged to my older brother, uh, who was who was a you know a number of years older than me. So so he wasn't really interested in them anymore. So there were these old you know sort of tattered. Mar- mostly Marvel comics down there, and they were, you know, in retrospect, they were classic Marvel comics. They were um, some of the first Avengers and Spider-Man and and Fantastic Four issues from the from the real Silver Age of Marvel. And I just got I I just got caught up in 
in the in this in this visual storytelling in the pictures because I think when I first stumbled across those, um, I was probably too young to even read the words. Uh, but I can remember looking at the pictures, especially Kirby stuff, especially the Kirby FF stuff, and being sort of sort of repelled but sort of attracted to it at the same time because it was kind of creepy and weird and everybody had square fingers but <laughs> but I couldn't stop looking at it um, and really the, the so that that love of visual storytelling has always stayed with me whether it was was comics or film Wow uh, now when did you kind of decide I, I want to be a writer like this is something I could do um, I always sort of decided I was going to be a writer once once I had come to the conclusion that maybe professional baseball wasn't in my future, you know, and that, that sort of happened by about sixth grade. Um, um, I think the, uh, uh, I think the, 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 the path that I was going to take as a writer was, I, I kind of figured I'd end up being a novelist because I read voraciously as a kid all the way through. Um, and I actually, uh, out of, right out of college I was a journalist so I was I was making my living as a I made my living as a writer my entire adult life um, and then a few years later you know I was friends with Jim Starlin already um, and uh, the, the the suggestion came from Jim the the the, the notion of, of hey you know did you ever think about you know writing comics to put food on the table and I thought, well, yeah, but that's not a realistic goal for anybody to have. That's, you know, that's like a pipe dream. Uh, but, you know, Jim took me by the hand and showed me the ropes and took me into Marvel, and, and I've been doing it ever since. Now, I guess, is that kind of explain how you ended up in Silver Surfer? Like, that's a cosmic book. Starlin, obviously, is well-known for cosmic stuff. Is that kind of how you started out in the cosmic realm? Yeah, I, I co-wrote. My initial stories were co-written with Jim, which is, I mean, he was literally showing me how to do the job. Um, and, uh, and and the whole thing came about because I, I, you know, Jim and I were friends, but I had also, uh, I also copy edited his first novel, his first prose novel. And um, I guess I did a pretty good job because he came to me and said, hey, you know what you're doing. Um, why don't you try some comics? Uh, so... Uh, I, you know, I was able to learn the ropes through Jim, and obviously Jim uh, co-wrote some stuff with me, helped me get my first few few gigs, and then when he left Silver Surfer, I'm sure there was much arm twisting on his part, but they they handed me the book, so that was my first monthly, um, really kind of right off the bat early in my career, uh, and uh, that was my on the job training. What was it like writing those Silver Surfer books once you were kind of had the training wheels off, so to speak, and you were kind of going on your own? What was that like? Oh, it was awesome. You know, I, I you know, because every when, when you, uh, you know, when you first when you first break in doing this, you don't know how much you don't know, so you just you just dive into the deep end of the pool, um, and. Uh, you know, it, I, I'm looking back on it. I've, I've looked at some of that stuff over the years, and some of it is awkward and clunky. But some of it, I, some of it, I kind of like. Some of it, uh, you know, I, I could see what I was trying to do, even if I didn't quite have the skills yet to do it. Um, it was, you know, it, it's always a story that that I end up telling at convention panels or signings because people always ask, "How did you get into the business?" Um, 
and it's the story that ultimately nobody really wants to hear because my story is, well, I was friends with Jim Starlin and he got me a job. Well, that's a pretty cool um, story. That's, um, but but it's not it's not a story that's useful to anybody else. Uh, it's not a story that that other people can go, oh well, I, I can follow your path. Uh, it, it was certainly a very different time in the '90s. Uh, the boom was on, and um, and look, uh, publishers were willing to were willing to publish damn near anything to fill the space around the ads because everything was selling. So. Um, so a lot of people got in at that point, um, and, and truthfully, not a lot of them are still around. Uh, a lot of people got in, and and comics is a comics is a tough gig uh, to keep yourself going if you're doing it as a as a freelancer. Um, uh, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I obviously I I realize I've been very fortunate in uh, in my career. I've I've had you know, people give me helping hands, and I've had, I've had good breaks. So I'm, I'm not under the illusion that, um, you know, I'm some sort of special flower who, you know, is still writing comics 25 years later. Uh, I, I, I got very, I got very lucky out of the gate, and I have continued to be fortunate. Um, part of it is just, you know, being in the right place at the right time and doing the work when it's put in front of you. So absolutely. What about cosmic? Because you've obviously written a lot of cosmic stuff. What about cosmic clicks for you as a writer? Um, you know, honestly, it it wasn't the sort of thing that really clicked with me as a reader. I was never like you know, I was never the the, the, the cosmic guy when I was just reading stuff. I mean, I read science fiction novels when I was a kid, and you know, uh, you know. Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury, but it, I was much more of a you know Robert E. Howard and Edgar Rice Burroughs and and Tolkien sort of sort of kid, um, the real sort of adventure stuff. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't a plan that oh you know cosmic is the stuff that I really want to do. It's just it's just what was first presented to me, um, and I, I had a ball doing it. It was it was great uh, training, uh, particularly. Doing the Infinity Gauntlet stuff early on was great training in in terms of how you play in a shared universe and how uh, how that has to work for for the stories to all flow in the same direction. Um, so it was not a it was not a conscious decision of oh man if I could only get an outer space book it was the one that was offered to me so I took it and because of that because I was working on on Silver Surfer and it and it met with some level of, of success that's why DC came to me and offered me Green Lantern now I am going to get to that in a second but one, one thing I wanted to ask you about this period this early period is uh, you also started writing a few random what if issues what was it like in terms of an experience to kind of flex your writing muscles on these done in ones where you kind of had more of a free reign because it wasn't a continuing story um, it was you know the what if issues were, you know, they were assignments. They were, they were the sort of assignments that that rookie writers got to uh, to come in and um, and sort of show off their skills. You know, so see if see if you could swim in the deep end of the pool. Um, what if was a was a series that had a different creative team every issue. Uh, the editor for what if was Craig Anderson who was also my Silver Surfer editor so I 
there was kind of a built-in pipeline there, and you know, he would say, "Hey, I need I need some what if pitches." You know, let me know if you got anything. And you know, two days later, I would uh, I would send him you know four or five ideas, and he would pick a couple, and I'd get the assignment. Um, you know, again, it was good training to um, to go in and tell a complete story in. 22 pages or sometimes in 11 pages because once in a while they would split up an issue to, for two different stories uh, so it was um, again they were good exercises to, to learn the craft now around this time as you mentioned DC came a calling with the Green Lantern now what was that call even like because I mean that was obviously a, a big change in direction and what kind of signaled you as the guy that they wanted um, I, you know I truthfully don't know why they offered it to me to this day I don't know why I was the guy that they wanted, other than you know I was doing Silver Surfer and it was and it was doing well for Marvel. So there's you know there's always a desire on the on the part of one publisher to to you know go raid the other publisher's coffers. Uh, I got a call late uh, on a I believe it was a Thursday night, uh, and I had actually been in the Marvel offices meeting with the Thor editor about uh, about my run on Thor. Which was which was not one of the finer moments of my career, um, but I you know I got back home after being in Manhattan during the day, and uh, my wife and I went out for pizza, and I got home and there was uh, there was a call from DC about nine o'clock, and uh, everybody was on it, which means um, Mike Carlin, Denny O'Neill, Archie Goodwin, plus. Uh, Kevin Dooley, the Green Lantern editor, uh, and you know the offer was made to me there. Do you want to do this book? And initially, I felt like, man, Green Lantern, that's cool. I love you know I love Hal's costume and the whole you know sort of almost Star Wars like setting that you could do with it. And then the other shoe dropped, which was, so here's the story we want you to tell. Um, and and it was obviously it was a big deal. It was a it was a uh, sea change in where the book was going to be and um, I actually had to think about it for a week or so to decide whether I was going to take the gig or not um, and eventually uh, eventually I said you know or eventually they said we need an answer because we're already late on it uh, and and I decided to I decided to take it because it seemed like um, it seemed like a really interesting opportunity to create something and not just not just continue what had come before when you got the gig doing that, I mean, obviously they kind of had the direction. How much of the initial storylines beats were kind of already in place, and how much did you kind of were you able to project into into it yourself? Um, they gave me about a page and a half outline of what the three issues of Emerald Twilight were supposed to be, and it was just the broad strokes. The the you know here's what happens over the three issues. All the details, you know, and and, and the the real story beats were mine, but the overall framework was was something that the editorial had already decided and knew knew where they wanted the story to go. What elements of that story are you really proud of? I'm sorry, say again, Adam. You dropped oh, out again. Oh, my apologies. I was just saying, what elements of that story are you really proud of to this day? I mean, it's it's a very striking story. I mean, a lot of people feel different ways about it, but it is a a powerful story nonetheless. Uh, what are the, your kind of favorite things about it? Um, you know, I, I have a real 
problem kind of looking back on my stuff, my own stuff, and feeling like, oh well, here's the part that was really cool because I, I, you know, I don't feel like that's that's my, you know, that's my judgment to make. Um, uh, ultimately, I feel like Emerald Twilight was a story that that was given to me to tell, and um, ideally would have loved to have you know six issues, six issues instead of three, to really to really plumb the emotional depths of, of what happened. But we, you know, we played the cards we were dealt and we got, we got through it in three issues. I, I mean, hopefully the, the thing that, that resonates is that it, it's, you know, it's a tragedy is, is what it really is. It's, it's, it's the, the fall of a, it's the tragic fall of a hero. Um, and if, if I'm proud of anything from that story, it's, it's that hopefully there were, you know, it resonated emotionally with people um, because if you're if you're telling stories that the audience doesn't have any reaction to, you're not doing your job. Okay. Now, with creating Kyle Rayner, how much of that again came from editorial, and how much of it was you deciding who this character was going to be? Obviously, we were going to have a new Green Lantern, but where did it go from there? Yeah, really. The, the last the last line of the notes that I was given for Emerald Twilight said a new green lantern is introduced uh and that was it there was there was no overt direction there was no um there was no predetermined uh character that was going to be in that role uh they really let daryl banks and i kind of make it up uh which is is certainly not a it's certainly not a certainly not would not happen these days obviously these are multi-million or even billion dollar franchises now um and there are a lot more cooks in the kitchen than hey writer a and artist b go off and make something up that's it's really not the way things work anymore um for for kyle you know i asked i asked if it needed to be you know did the new green lantern need to be a an earthling and they said yes and i said you know could it be a female and they said we'd we'd rather you you stayed with a, a male lead in the book, and that was all the direction I got. So, um, as far as you know, who Kyle, who Kyle was, his name, his costume, his background—that was all stuff that Daryl and I made up, and DC approved. What did DC? Did DC give you any pushback about the death of Alex? Uh, pushback in what sense? Well, like, I mean, it's a very stark, kind of startling thing in, the, in, what, like the third or fourth issue of Kyle even being Green Lantern when he discovers his girlfriend's been murdered. Was there any kind of pushback about that, about kind of going in that direction? Because it's, it's very visceral. I mean, even now it still really uh, packs a punch. Um, th- there wasn't pushback because we were planning on it from the beginning. I mean, it was it was my plan that that, you know, that someone would pay the price for... Uh, for what seemed to Kyle uh, like winning the lottery. I mean, he gets this all-powerful, this all-powerful, almost magical device, and he can do anything he wants with it. Um, This is like the best thing in the world. But it's, it's suddenly not the best thing in the world once you find out that the people around you are the ones who are at risk uh, because they don't have a magic ring, they don't have an all-powerful cosmic weapon to protect themselves. The people that you love are the ones who who pay the price for you doing what you do. 
With regards to Hal, when Hal got his kind of uh, his heroic moment during Final Night, and you wrote uh, the one shot that kind of shows him doing that, um, what was it like to write that for the character? Um, given some of the reaction to how he'd been written in Emerald Twilight. Um, well, certainly Final Night wasn't my story, and it's not one that that I came up with. So it's really not for me to judge how that. Um, how that all transpired. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't really enthused about taking Hal off the board like that because I felt like he was, um, he provided DC with a really worthy, you know, cosmic level antagonist. Um, and I certainly, I certainly never saw him as a villain, but I did see him as an anti-hero more, more like, uh, more like Magneto or, or even to a certain extent, Dr. Doom who are, to me, two of the best villains in comics because they're convinced of the righteousness of what they're doing. They don't they don't see themselves as as villains. They see themselves as heroes. Um, and the best heroes are always uh, are always are the best villains are always people who think they're the hero of their own story. Um, Doom, Magneto, uh, Darkseid, uh, Thanos. They're all completely convinced that they're doing the right thing for the right reason. Uh, and maybe the universe is arrayed against them, but in their minds, the universe is wrong, not them. What was it like creating the Green Lantern Silver Surfer crossover story? And again, how did that even come about? I mean, it's obviously you'd be a natural fit for it because you were writing Green Lantern and you'd just written Silver Surfer, but how did that project even get off the ground and how did you get involved? Um, well, obviously, it was again, it was a different time Back then, Marvel and DC were much more amenable to doing crossovers and and doing projects together because that's the point at which the the, the bottom had started to fall out of the of the industry sales wise. So uh, cooperation where uh, both publishers could make some money was was a lot more common certainly than it is now, um, where now it's more like armed camps. Uh, so so there was. Um, and, and certainly the, the relationship between the two, uh, the two companies, they were still both based in New York. Uh, staff would go back and forth between the two companies. There was, there was a rivalry, but it was friendly. And in the, you know, in the case of, uh, Green Lantern Surfer, I just went to my Green Lantern editor and said, Hey, this is, this is an obvious one to do. Let's do this. And he ran it up the flagpole at DC and got Marvel to sign off on it. And, uh, it was really pretty easy. It was a, it was it was an obvious one, and uh, and frankly, one that uh, that I had a ball doing. It was a you know it was a real dream project. No, shortly after that, you were also part of the creative team that uh, put together DC versus Marvel. Now, what was it like, kind of being one of the writers selected on the I guess more on the DC side to write that book? Same as Surfer Lantern, because um, again, it was. You know, it was people from both companies who were interested in, you know, in telling a fun story and, and showing off the universes. Um, the the initial the initial meeting for Marvel versus DC uh, didn't even take place in the offices. We were at Mark Grunewald's apartment in uh, in Manhattan because they didn't want anybody from either company realizing what was going on. So it was it was so hush hush. We were we weren't even allowed in the offices to talk about it and. And eventually, you know, eventually it was shared with with both editorial staffs and 
and then um, and then it kind of went from there. It was obviously a pre-social media era, and so it was a lot easier to keep the lid on it. Now, obviously, as you said, you don't always look back in your own work and you know say that oh, this was great and this was great. But for something like that, uh, when you worked on that with Peter with um, uh, the other writers. Uh, what was it like kind of what, what were your favorite moments of that because you get to take two universes and put them together and that's something that doesn't happen that often and you get to kind of put everyone together were there any particular particular matchups or meetings that you really enjoyed writing um, you know I, I honestly enjoyed all of it because it was just fun it was just a big a big popcorn tent pole sort of story uh, and and it was the sort of thing that you you know that I literally, dreamed about when I was 10 years old. I can remember writing a letter. I remember whether it went to Marvel or DC, probably Marvel, when when I was, you know, eight or nine years old, maybe 10 years old, um, with, with the obviously earth-shattering, no one had ever thought of this before, idea that the Justice League and the Avengers should meet. Uh, so, you know, so... 15 years later, or however long it was, I'm actually doing it, and and I'm entrusted to uh, to actually have these characters meet. It was, uh, you know, I really didn't feel any pressure. I just, I just, I just wallowed in it for the for the entire time we were doing it because it was just so much fun. Um, the, you know, my only regret with Marvel versus DC is that we didn't. You know, we had four issues to tell the story. I wish we had twelve because there was just so much material there that we wanted to cover. But uh, they wanted to get in, get out, and and tell the story over a over a you know period of months, and and uh, it was really a project to to kind of hopefully reignite the reignite the market because sales had sales had bottomed out uh, when when retailers over ordered on a bunch of different things that had come out in the mid nineties. Now, right after, well, as part of that that. Uh the DC versus Marvel. We also got the Amalgam titles, and then you got to do Doctor Strange. Bait. How did that come to be the title that you ended up writing? Was it uh, again coming from editorial? Like these are the types of books we want to tell, or these the combinations we want to tell, or was this purely this is the one I have, this is my pitch, and then they let you go with it? Now, in, in in that case, that was the the the, the Amalgam stuff was the big surprise when we had the meeting at Mark Grunewald's apartment. Uh, where Mark Grunewald for Marvel and Mike Carlin from DC walked us through the story that, that was going to be told and the fact that the you know the big the big the big treat uh, halfway through it or, or three quarters of the way through it was was the amalgam universe where the characters would get mashed together and they had a list of the titles that were going to be done um, and it was you know it was obvious ones like. Uh, like Dark Claw, which was Batman and Wolverine. Uh, so they went down the list, and you know, and again, it's like you're a ten year old all over again because you're actually, you know, we're actually going to stick these characters together and we're going to print them. Uh, so when they got to Strange Fate, I just said, "Well, I'm doing that one." You know, it, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. Uh, I guess really, it wasn't a request. I just said, "Well, that's the one I have to do." And, and Mike and Mark shrugged and said, "Okay." Uh, and you know, it was kind of that simple. It's interesting because I was one of my follow-up questions, which you've now answered. Basically, is was that was that book as much of a blast to write as it was to read? Because as a reader, it was a lot of fun. Uh, they were all a lot of fun, but 
but you know, like I said, I didn't have I didn't have any stage fright with Marvel versus DC. I just jumped right into it because it it was so much fun. Uh, Strange Fate is still the only book that I've ever had stage fright working on uh, in my career, and not because of the concept, but because of who I was working with. Um, and you know, I to me that's still one of the one of the great comic illustration gigs ever was was Kevin Nolan inking uh, Garcia Lopez. It's just amazing. I mean, I, I still have one of the original pages, actually the, the last page from the story uh, hanging in my office. Uh, when I had when I had said, I'm going to do Strange Fate, they told me who the editor was, uh, which is Dan Thorsland at DC. They said, go talk to him about it when we tell the rest of the, you know, when we tell the rest of the staff. So when I, I went into Dan's office and I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to do Strange Fate. You know, Mike signed off on it, and he said that's great. And he said, "I I don't care who you get to who you get to pencil it, but we have to get Kevin Nolan to ink it because this is a book that screams Kevin Nolan." And Dan looked at me and he said, "Well, how about we call Garcia Lopez to pencil it?" And I was like, "Well, that's okay." <laughs> uh, you know, he, he to me he's you know he's one of the you know he's one of the top five on the on on the totem pole of comic artists ever. Uh, so when I sat down to write. Strange Fate. Uh, I I kind of got nervous because I thought, holy jeez, Garcia Lopez is going to draw this. I have to I have to make sure this is worthy of his you know of his Titanic skill set. Uh, and then Kevin Nolan's going to ink in it, so it's, the story's got to be good when it gets to Kevin. Um, so I kind of laid around on the couch in my office for about two weeks, fretting over the story, and and just felt I you know I felt like I couldn't really wrap my head around it because I had to do something worthy of uh, uh, worthy of Jose and, and Kevin and and I guess about two weeks in it dawned on me that, that I could write I could write basically the, the equivalent of the phone book and it was still going to look amazing because because Garcia Lopez and Kevin Nolan were going to draw it uh, and that kind of freed me up to just sit down and write the damn thing <laughs> and was it did it end up being what you were hoping for? Um, I mean, certainly, it certainly ended up being what I was hoping for. I mean, and basically what I was hoping for is, oh man, Garcia Lopez and Kevin Nolan are going to draw my story. Uh, so there, there was, there was no chance of disappointment on my end. Uh, the, the story was, um, again, the only regret that I have about the story is that, that we didn't have 48 pages instead of, instead of 22. Um, the, the only, uh, the only the only spot in the story where we weren't sure what was going to happen is I really wanted uh, Charles Xavier to be the guy under the strange fate mask at the end of the story and there was a lot of back and forth with Marvel about whether whether they were going to let us do that and finally Marvel Marvel signed off on it uh, we were you know we were more than halfway through the pages being drawn by the time Marvel actually signed off and said, "Okay, it can be, it, it can be Xavier under the under the mask." <laughs> wow! Uh, now, around this time, you were also started writing a Superboy for a bit. What was it like writing both Green Lantern and Superboy at the same time? Both kind of younger legacy heroes, but very different from each other. Um, it was, you know, it was an interesting exercise because Kyle was just a little bit older than Superboy. He was in his 
you know, early to mid twenties, and Superboy was a kid. He was he was the equivalent of sixteen. Um, and I ultimately found uh, found Kyle uh, a lot more somebody that I could that I could comfortably write a lot more than than Superboy because I guess I was I was removed from sixteen years old enough that that I I had a had a harder time plugging into to his life. Um, so I, I really enjoyed my year on Superboy, uh, but it was ultimately not a long-term fit for me uh, because I, the editor and I couldn't agree on where the book was going to go. Um, I really wanted to move him, move him back to Smallville, move him in with Superman's parents, and sort of do a, you know, do a take on the classic Superboy stories, but with a, you know, with a contemporary twist uh, where he would, you know, he'd be he'd be going to high school in Smallville and he would sort of be the fish out of water uh, and trying to keep his secret identity under wraps. But um, that wasn't a direction we could get approved ultimately, so I decided to, to step away from the book and then the original team was kind enough to come back. Now, with Green Lantern, when you hit issue 100, you brought back Hal Jordan as part of a time travel story. Was that a pitch of yours that like you really thought it was a good idea to kind of bring back the most heroic version of Hal, or was that something that an editorial wanted for the hundredth issue? Uh, well, we, you know, it was sort of a mutual assent that we had agreed that you know it would, the hundredth issue should have should have Kyle and Hal in it, and and I really wanted to write sort of classic Green Lantern Hal. It was you know that's the one thing that I had never really had a chance to do. I had written sort of broken Hal and Hal gone over the edge to become Parallax but I hadn't written him as sort of the you know the square jawed heroic test pilot that, that I think Hal's character works best as um, so really that was a way for me to uh, to to be able to write his character uh, in kind of that silver age sweet spot it definitely reads that way, and in a good way. Like you know, that, that it just—it's a, a fun throwback, and you kind of see the juxtaposition of who Kyle is and, and his modern sensibilities versus you know this guy from ten years ago, which feels a lot more than that. Because uh, yeah, as you said, he's still the lantern jawed, literally uh, hero. Yeah, it was certainly it was certainly about the, the contrasts, and and to some extent, it was about the the. Um, the heroic choice of Hal because he knows what his future is and he still goes back in time and and to, to do what he needs to do. Um, it was the story. Hopefully, had some 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 bittersweet qualities to it. Well, absolutely. Now, what what uh, was it? Did you find it easy or hard to leave Green Lantern and go to CrossGen? Um, no, it wasn't an, it wasn't an easy decision at all. And and certainly, if if CrossGen had not uh, required uh, exclusive contracts for the people that went on staff. I I would have stayed on Green Lantern. I was you know I was very content on the book. I loved working with the teams that I that I was working with. Um, Bob Shrek had taken over as editor, and he's one of my favorite editors in the business. Uh, so it was it was really it was really it was tough for me to leave the book, and and that was the hardest aspect about going to CrossGen was walking away from. Uh, from a book that I had been writing for seven years, so it was not, you know, it was by no means a slam dunk. Uh, but my contract with CrossGen 
uh, required me to, to walk away from what I was doing everywhere else. So that's what had to happen. Now, what was it about Crosstown that attracted you to leave in the first place? I mean, that's, as you said, it's a big jump. It's leaving a book and a character that you created, not the book, but the character. Uh, and then you go to something brand new. Was it the excitement of creating all these new worlds, or what was it exactly? Well, it was a combination. It was certainly the excitement of, of something new and a new challenge. Um, you know, honestly, more than anything, it was the fact that it was a staff job. It was it was the opportunity to be treated like an adult, to be treated like an employee, uh, which, which means, um, you know, you get, you get vacation time, sick time, and you get benefits, and you get... A lot of the stuff that that we as freelancers uh, have no access to because we, we're not employees. We're not. Um, we're not. Uh, we're, we're ultimately replaceable cogs in the way the comic business works uh, now and has has really always worked. Um, so there was the, the the lure of stability was one of the one of the big things with CrossGen uh, that there was the chance to. Um, to have an actual job and and feel like there was a future if we could make the thing work. Um, whereas ultimately, as a freelancer, you're you know you get to ride the merry-go-round for a while and then uh, you get bounced off and somebody else gets on. Of the you know the the, the regular ongoing titles at Caution that you wrote, which one do you think was um, maybe has your best voice or that you were most jazzed about writing and you think is is your best work of the four? Probably, probably Cyan was was the one that that I enjoyed the most because it had the biggest cast and it had the it, it had the biggest tapestry for a story. Um, I, I really enjoyed everything that I did there, uh, but but Cyan was kind of a book that that I really felt like I could sink my teeth into, um, and one that I that I stayed with as long as I wanted to. Um, uh, Sojourn was was also. A lot of fun, uh, but because of kind of office politics, I ended up stepping away from that book with issue 25 and didn't really get to finish the story that I had started. Um, it's funny because Sojourn was very much a product of me going into my office and coming out three days later with, here's this book we're going to do, and here are the characters, and here are the, here are the, uh, here's the settings, and, and it, I, I pretty much created that from whole cloth. Whereas Cyan had uh, had a lot of other input from uh, Mark Alessi, who was the, the guy running uh, CrossGen, and his cousin Gina, who was the, uh, uh, I guess, the chief creative officer or whatever her, her title was. You know, the, the, the guts of that, the, the bones of that uh, story existed before I got there. And I, you know, I could kind of come in and, and change them into whatever into whatever form I wanted and, and make the story uh, make the story bigger but but the, the basics of, of sign were in place and ultimately that ended up feeling like more of my book than than some of the others that I had uh, had been involved with uh, since day one what was it like working with uh, Bart on uh, the path um, it was great I, I, you know Bart is one of my best friends so the opportunity to, to eventually work together was was very welcome Um the path, um, the path was a ball. Uh, I, I love doing that book, especially the fact that it gave Bart a chance to, 
uh, approach his art in a way that he was excited about. And, and you know, everybody knows Bart for the Brutes and Babe stuff and the, the huge muscle figures. Um, but Bart really wanted to approach the path in a very, uh, in a very different way from from his usual work it wasn't as rendered there were a lot more shadows um and and i think to this day it's probably still his best work um we uh you know we had a great time on that book and and to a great extent at crush and we were generally left alone to tell the kind of stories that we wanted to tell um once in a while there would be somebody looking over your shoulder and, and kibitzing a little bit but the creative teams were very much responsible for what went into the books now, with the path, how did uh, what was the genesis of that? I mean, it's obviously it's a it's basically like a samurai story, but like, how did that come from, or wh- what was it about it? Like, yeah, I just want to know where that idea came from, I guess, because <laughs> it's very different uh, amongst the different cross-gen books. Like, it, I, I guess the part of that is is your writing, and also Bart's, you know, very um, the way he used his style in a different way, as you said. Well, in in a lot of ways, the, the cross-gen universe was the, the concept was. We'll do we'll do any kind of book except superheroes. Uh, we weren't going to do overt superheroes, even though we we got kind of close to that with some things. Um, and when uh, when the line was going to expand, uh, Mark Alessi again, who was you know who was the the guy running the show, he was a big fan of James Clavell's Shogun, uh, and he happened to mention that. And I'm like samurai stuff. I love samurai stuff, uh, and so. You know, when you're all in the same office like that, it was it was very easy to, to get things accomplished and and sit down and have a 45 minute meeting and decide a great deal of stuff when you're all around the same table. Uh, so uh, it was you know it was again it was pretty simple. Bart was ready to Bart was ready to leave the first. He had felt he felt like he had done all he could do with that, and. Um, we went to him and both said we really want to do this. We're both, you know, we're both big fans of of samurai material and the the overall look and feel of those kind of stories. Um, and uh, you know, we, we got a yes, and like the next day we started on it. Wow. Now with uh, with creating Sojourn, um, how did Greg Land come to be the the artist? Was that the artist you always kind of wanted for the book, or you know, what was that process like? Greg was initially uh, supposed to draw Meridian for CrossGen. Um, he was he was going to come in and, and replace the original team on Meridian. And um, looking at Greg's stuff, you know, I felt and and you know ultimately convinced other people that that Greg's Greg's best use to the company was maybe not drawing a a, a book that was. Uh, a little bit more fairy tale oriented, um, so I convinced the powers that be that we should do kind of a straight up epic fantasy book uh, because Fellowship of the Ring was due in theaters soon, and it was going to obviously be a huge hit. And I felt like we needed a book that uh, that could reflect that. And and also, honestly, I had always wanted wanted to write a fantasy book, and I thought, well, now's the time. And um, and I, I guess I talked to Greg and said, would you you know would you be up for creating a new book instead of uh, instead of going on on the Meridian? And he was he was real keen on it because he wasn't you know 
he was more enthused with the with the epic fantasy than more of a fairy tale, and uh, really that was something he could sink his teeth into. Uh, and he, you know, he liked drawing monsters and castles and all the kind of the 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 motifs that we had uh, that we had in that book. And you know, I, for that one, before Greg moved into the studio, uh, I went into like I said, I went into my office for two three days and kind of worked out everything and drew maps of what the land looked like and had wrote character bios and sent all that stuff to Greg and he actually started on on the designs for everything even before he got into the studio which of the characters in Sojourn was your favorite to write uh definitely not the dog because he was a pain in the ass <laughs> the uh I, I actually actually didn't mind the dog overly much Greg minded the dog because it was just like whenever you had some sort of battle or adventure or something like you're like oh shit what are we going to do with the dog the dog can't climb the ladder how do we get the dog over the wall it was it was always uh, there was always some sort of consternation about how to deal with the dog in the in the story um, I, you know I don't know that I that I liked any character over another I mean I liked Arwen and Gareth both uh, a bit because they were very different characters to write he was sort of lovable rogue and and she was kind of a you know broken hard ass uh, I, I, I liked I think what I liked the most was the, the interplay between the two of them uh, it was it was a little bit of, of uh, you know a little bit of sexual tension as well as a real clash of personalities I was um Absolutely, I always liked the way they interacted. I also really liked the way that you wrote Mordaf because if you read the prequel issue and then you read him in the rest of the book, it, he feels different but the same, and I mean that in a good way. Like it was always interesting to kind of see how this guy had changed and how death had transformed him, and he still wanted the same things, but it didn't quite. It felt more hollow to him, and I always thought that was oh, an interesting. Well, I always thought that was an interesting know, again, touch. It was, you know, he had uh, he he had. Uh, he had attained his desire and, and ultimately finds that getting what you want isn't all it's cracked up to be. Um, so again, there was, you know, I wanted to make sure that, yes, he was definitely the villain, but I wanted to make sure there was some humanity and some tragedy to him as well. Was it, oh, like, was it your idea or is it just when uh, Greg was doing the art that to have him look so transformed uh, when he comes back from the dead, like before he dies, he's got the long hair. He's actually more of a, almost an attractive leading man type. And then when he comes back, he's this hideous kind of monster. Was that always kind of in your initial kind of um, character? Yeah, that was, that, that was definitely the idea that we wanted to. We wanted his physicality to to represent um, the price he had paid for the the power he had attained. Uh, you know, again, it's it's a you know it's a situation of of you know he he got exactly what he wanted, but it didn't all it it didn't uh, it was not the reward he had hoped it was going to be. Now, when um, uh, actually, I'll, I'll I'll move to a different question. Um, with uh, with Mystic, uh, what 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 was it about Mystic that attracted you? Because it seems like it's very different from the other books. Like the other ones are more fan, like more of a traditional high fantasy, and that was very much a different direction in Mystic. Um, the, the, I think the real draw for for Mystic with with me was. Um, Brandon Peterson was going to be drawing that one, and I wanted to work with Brandon. So it was, it was kind of a, um, you know, it was kind of a, uh, 
you know, if if you want to work with him, you got to do this book. And and I was cool with it because I like you know I'd always been a fan of Doctor Strange and and magic stuff in general. Uh, and I liked the fact that we we're going to make this kind of a uh, Art Deco 1920s sort of looking book. Um, the the original concept for Mystic was was ultimately fairly different from what got on the page um, in that. Uh, the the main character of Mystic, uh, Giselle, didn't exist in the first pitch for the story as it was envisioned. Um, the the story that was initially there was that uh, uh, Giselle's sister uh, Genevieve was the, the the main character, and she was sort of the studious one and worked to get worked to get to the you know to be the the master magician of her guild and she she was a dedicated hardworking student and strove to get what she wanted and that's what happened and on our on our first meeting day at crossgen i said that's not a story uh that's that's a series of events where somebody gets what they want which is not which is not where drama comes from and and i suggest the idea that you know the the hardworking sister uh ultimately doesn't get what she wants the slacker sister does and so it it leads to strife between the two of them as well as forces both of them to grow up um and that's that's the direction that the book went in uh which was certainly very different from from what um was originally envisioned uh so the you know the uh, the world and the design was was kind of the same, but the the this, the basics of the characters got very different from from initial concept to the way the book turned out. Now with Scion, as you said, it kind of had its roots. Like there was already a lot of kind of cooks there when it first got created. How did you make it your own, or how do you felt that you made it your own, and that it became more than just that and became more of a Ron Mars thing? Um, I, you know, I really think you do that with any story. Um, you you find what works for you and what um, and what what speaks to you as a story and and you write about the things that are meaningful to you. Certainly, another writer could have come in and, and had a completely different take on the story, but I you know the story was originally envisioned as kind of Star Wars meets Prince Valiant, and both of those things were were uh, near and dear to me and uh, and and I thought worked together the the, the, the world that was, as it was envisioned and as Jim Chung eventually uh, brought it to life uh, that was all pretty close to what um, to what the initial concept was and then we just we just broadened it from there uh, we we or or I should say I you know fleshed out the families of the two of the two dynasties um and i guess to, to some extent it you know there's almost a, a game of thrones quality to it where you had you know warring families waging warring families trying to wrest control of the world from one another um and uh and multiple players on both sides of the on, on both sides on, in both families um that's the part that i liked it was a it was a it was a fairly big tapestry uh so that we had, you know, that sort of intrigue, and then we had kind of the the Romeo and Juliet aspect of the uh, the the son and daughter from from opposing houses actually falling in with each other. 
What was it? You know, when once Crossing had kind of ended and you landed uh, writing Witchblade for quite a long time, what what brought you to like? What was it that attracted you in Witchblade and actually prompted you to stay on it for so long? Um, honestly, Witchblade was never a book that I even considered writing. Uh, it just wasn't on my radar. I knew what it was certainly, um, but it wasn't a book that I paid a whole lot of attention to. And when when Crossgen started to swirl down the drain um i I actually left staff before the bitter end because you you know obviously you could see which way the wind was blowing um uh a couple of publishers got in touch with me when when um it was obvious what was going to happen uh dark horse was actually one of them and i did some star wars stuff for them right off the bat and then and then Tomcat reached out uh jim mclaughlin was a was the editor-in-chief at the time and was then and still is a real good friend. Um, he wanted to bring me in to do some stuff, and uh, I think I actually did some some darkness issues first to just kind of test out the waters and see how uh, see how it was all going to work. And then when when those were over with, Jim said, "What do you you know? What do you want to do next?" And my answer at the time was Magdalena because I that was my favorite character in the Top Cat universe. I liked the history. I liked the design. And he said, yeah, that sounds great. How about you do Witchblade instead? Um, <laughs> so I said, well, I don't really know anything about Witchblade, but if you send me some books, uh, we'll see We'll see what's there. And, you know, like two days later, this huge, this huge box of books shows up. Uh, and I went through the whole, you know, went through the whole run up to that point and kind of got in my head what I thought worked best for this, for the series. And, and I pitched that to, to Top Cow and and they said yeah go do that you know I because I, I, I basically told them look if if you want stories where you know the the main function of the story is to get her clothes to fall off and she's wearing a you know witchblade metal bikini that's not really what I'm interested in doing so I'm probably not your guy but if if you let me get in there and try to really flesh out her character and and make make readers care about her no matter what what she's wearing that's a little bit more up my alley and they said you know they said go do that and that was actually the last time we discussed uh you know the the cheesecake factor or the metal bikini or any of that stuff because that just wasn't what you know that wasn't what i was interested in uh in terms of the book and the character and and to their to their everlasting credit top guy really let me let me do what i wanted to do with the book and the character Oh. Now a question uh, Around the time when Crossroom was ending as well And just before I guess Witchblade You uh, got to write another Kyle Rayner story To kind of end his ongoing What was, like how did they kind of approach you To come back and kind of write that Final Kyle Rayner starring as the Green Lantern story And was that bittersweet Or what was it like to kind of come back To your creation it was it was a little of both You know, as with everything There's, you know, as with everything at, a, at the big two Editorial certainly has its has its input, um, though to to for you know to great extent they kind of let me do what I wanted to do with those with the last six issues and uh, you know we there was mutual agreement as to where we were going to go. Um, DC just uh, DC just called up uh, Peter Tomasi was editing um, Green Lantern at the time and he called up and said you know would you be willing to come back and do a do six issues to wrap up wrap up this volume and I said sure uh, I was you know I was more than 
happy to do it. They had a they had a definite ending spot. They 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 had a, a place where they wanted me to leave the character at the end of the last issue for what was going to come next. So I had to get to that point. Um, but for the most part, they you know they kind of let me run with it, and and I asked them if. Um, if we could bring in Luke Ross to do to do the art on the on the six issues, because I knew that um, that Crossgen had left Luke holding the bag for a lot of money. Uh, he got he got stiffed by by Crossgen for quite a bit, and uh, when the bottom dropped out, uh, so as soon as I found out that that Luke had been left kind of high and dry, I went to DC and said, you know, this guy's really good. Can we have him draw the six issues? They looked at his stuff and were more than happy to have him come on. Oh, his his artwork in that on that arc is absolutely fantastic. I mean, your writing on it is great as well, but like he really brought it to life. Um, with with the um, with that last arc, you did a bit of a fake out with uh, Major Force and Kalrinner's mom. Was was immediate reaction before people realized that it was a fake out? Um, was it pretty harsh, or what do people think of that? Um, yeah, it was actually something that DC asked for. They, you know, they asked for that sort of fake out moment, and oh, really? and I agreed to it. Um, you know, it, obviously, it's um, you know, the, the, again, it was there was not much social media at the time. Uh, the the internet reaction does not at that point did not. Uh, <laughs> did not come anywhere near the sort of vociferous immediate reaction that you get now. So, uh, you know, you don't, as a creator then, you didn't really get much immediate feedback. Um, there were, there were letters to the editor and, and, you know, eventually you got, you got a parcel of those in the mail from the DC offices. Um, but it was, uh, you were a little bit more insulated from, you know, people, reading the issue, setting it down, and going immediately online to lose their minds. <laughs> Which they probably would have. Oh, yeah, in a lot of ways, I I consider myself fortunate that the that my time on Green Lantern was mostly pre-internet, uh, at least in terms of social media, um, because certainly there would have been... I mean, we, we did get... We did get death threat letters in the mail, uh, but that actually requires somebody to sit down, write it out, put a stamp on it, and go to the mailbox and mail it. Um, there's there's a lot less effort uh, required now to uh, to you know to tell someone that you think their head should be cut off and they should die in the gutter. Yeah. Um, we're going to let you go in just a second because we really appreciate the time you spent with us thus far. But we just had a few uh, listeners submitted questions for you as a bit of a lightning round. Uh, first, question, first question was, uh, did you feel a change of pace going from space-based stories in Silver Surfer and Green Lantern to more down-to-earth stories in Witchblade and the Crossgen books? Um, not really a change of pace. I mean, I uh, in some ways that was sort of the plan because... I, I didn't want to just keep doing the same thing. Uh, there are certainly creators in this business who sort of go back to the same well every time. And if that's what floats their boat, that's perfectly cool. But I wanted to stretch different muscles and, and, and try out different kinds of stories. And that's, that's still what I'm doing. Uh, I, I like to, you know, to try to try to do as many different kinds of things as possible. Um, so, 
when I was doing you know when I was doing those books all at the same time um, to me it was it was a pleasure because I got to I got to I didn't get tired of thing for lunch every day you know it was uh, there was a smorgasbord in front of me and it, it, it was more than just pizza <laughs> uh, the next question from the same listener was uh, how did you cope with the women in refrigerators movement um, I, I mean Gail Simone and I are friends and she when she started that she contacted me for my reaction and it you know it was not uh, it was not a conflict at all it was not a uh, it was not a uh, a fight at all um it was just a discussion uh and certainly i think there there are certainly valid uh points on the side of of female characters getting uh, uh getting short shrift to affect male characters um the the industry up to that point and even still now i mean is is dominated by male heroes who are not going to get killed who are not going to go away uh so if you want to have permanent lasting change in your book somebody in the supporting cast is going to end up dead uh it's it's uh you know i don't think there's a i don't think there's a a sweeping answer for for any situation um you know i think we have to reserve the right to tell unhappy stories but i think we as creators have to have to earn that right too Uh, we we shouldn't be uh we shouldn't be propping up cardboard characters to uh to uh to take out so that uh main characters can be affected um i think we have to we have to we have to earn the um we have to earn the unhappiness that we can sometimes bring to a story uh i think with with how immediate reader feedback has come has become now we're in a position where anytime you do something unpleasant to any character male female anybody there's pushback all the time uh and you just have to you know you have to be uh you have to be aware of that you have to expect it you have to you have to tell the story that you want to tell um certainly uh the you know the captain america captain the quote-unquote captain america is a nazi story uh got people incensed even though they only read part one of the story and you know I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Captain America is not going to be a Nazi or an agent of Hydra by the end of the storyline but we're in such we're in such a, a place of immediate gratification right now people don't want to wait till the end of a story to make a judgment they want to make a judgment right now and if you piss somebody off they're going to let you know about it unfortunately Another listener asked, uh, "What's a project you wished you had more time with?" Uh, say again, I'm already dropped out. Uh, what's a project you wished you had more time with? More time. Uh, I wish that I had actually um, been able to do a better job on Thor. I stuck around for on Thor for a year, and it wasn't any good. Um, and I never really got to tell the stories I wanted to tell, so that was unfortunate. And I also uh, was really sorry to walk away from. Exo Man of War after about a year's worth of issues because I love the character and I love the concept, but my schedule, uh, my schedule just wouldn't allow me to to continue doing everything that I was doing. Um, and when when I was doing Exo, it was two issues a month, and then I was offered Marvel versus DC, and something had to go. And 
EXO was the one that that ended up uh, taking it in the neck because I couldn't turn down uh, Marvel vs. DC. So uh, someday I would love to to do some more EXO Man of War stories. And I guess our last question, would you consider going back to doing a GL book starring Kyle? Um, You know, I never say never. Uh, Kyle is obviously very near and dear to my heart, and and you always feel like, you know, the, the characters you create always end up feeling like your kids, even though, um, you know, I don't own Carol, uh, I don't own Kyle, Daryl Banks doesn't own Kyle, we're, we're sort of interested parties, but we're certainly not, um, you know, we're certainly not the, the parents, so to speak, uh, the, those decisions are made by DC, um, so, you know, at the moment I have no plans, but I never say never to anything, because you never know, uh, you never know where you know where your career is going to go or what offers you might get. Um, Kyle is somebody that that um, I will always have a soft spot for. And uh, last question, this one's for me though. Is that besides ominous? Is there anything else that you'll be working on that we can look forward to reading in the near future? Um, yeah, but I can't talk about most of them actually. I just I realized the other day that that it must look to people like I'm not doing anything but uh, <laughs> there are a bunch of projects that will probably be seen next year uh, that haven't been announced yet um, some for uh, s- some that are going to be in foreign countries uh, some that are for uh, some that are involved with um, other publishers that I've worked for before uh, so there's all sorts of stuff that I'm working on and we're just kind of stockpiling and and I can't really talk about him yet. So I guess the answer is yes, but no. Fair enough. Well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today and for uh, for talking about your career. And especially, I, I as a CrossGen fan, I'm just glad I had a chance to uh, to talk to one of the creators of one of my favorite books, which was Sojourn. I uh, I'm slowly not- uh, awesome, Adam. I you know I I look, I look back on all that stuff generally fondly. Um, you know, it it's a, it was a situation that that was pretty good for for most of it, and then ended badly. So uh, I'm still proud of the work we did there. Absolutely, well, it's, it's, it still stands up. I was I was rereading uh, actually all of your uh, your question work in the last couple of weeks, and it still holds up. It's still still very good stuff. It makes me sad that it ended. Well, uh, all good things and all that, but uh, who knows? Uh, you know, r- rumor has it uh, a comic book company sort of has access to that stuff if they want it. So. Maybe someday uh, we'll see more of it. I can only hope. Well, thank you again for joining us. No problem.